Hello, everyone, and welcome to the October 6th edition of WarComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Skern, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. Pharmaceutical manufacturers that promote off-label uses for prescription drugs have become litigation targets for insurance companies, especially after Kaiser received a nine-figure RICO award last year against the manufacturer of Neurontin. The U.S. Supreme Court left intact a $142 million jury verdict against Pfizer Incorporated over the marketing of the epilepsy drug Neurontin last December. The jury had ruled in favor of an insurer who said it had been misled into paying for the drug for off-label uses or uses which it had not been approved. The Supreme Court's refusal to hear Pfizer's appeal means similar claims can now also go forward. Healthcare insurers have filed most of these cases. In May 2014, Humana joined the crowd, suing a manufacturer over off-label use of a device designed for spinal fusion surgeries. Workers' compensation carriers and even automobile insurers can also spend large amounts on the same medications. Their claims face substantial obstacles, and the results have been inconsistent so far, as shown by the recent decision dismissing the complaint in the Travelers Indemnity Company versus Cephalon case. Cephalon manufactures two opioid pain relievers, Actique and Fentora, which were approved by the FDA only for the management of breakthrough pain in cancer patients already receiving opioid therapy. In September 2008, Cephalon settled with the federal government and several states over its alleged promotion of Actique for use by non-cancer patients. Follow-on suits included an action by a union health plan and, in June, a suit by the city of Chicago. The traveler suit alleged that Cephalon's marketing misleadingly understated the risks of its products for non-cancer patients and specially targeted doctors who treat injured workers because workers' compensation laws limit insurers' ability to restrict coverage for particular drugs. As a result, travelers paid nearly $20 million for the two products. It asserted claims for fraud, negligent misrepresentation, violation of consumer protection statutes, and unjust enrichment. But the court dismissed the complaint on several grounds, beginning with lack of standing. Travelers claimed it was injured when it paid for Cephalon's drugs because they were ineffective in off-label uses and they were prescribed in place of cheaper alternatives. On the first point, the court held that the absence of data proving a drug's effectiveness for off-label use does not support the conclusion that the drug is actually ineffective, and that the fact that a drug poses a significant possibility of harm does not establish injury in fact to the party paying for the drug. These findings also doomed the insurer's second theory because the court further held that a plaintiff is not injured simply because it paid for a more expensive drug. It chided travelers for failing to name an equally effective, safer, less expensive drug that could have been prescribed in lieu of Cephalon's products. 
it found the failure to allege an injury fatal to the state statutory claims as well. As Kaiser proved, it is possible to overcome all of these positions in some cases, but even substantial evidence of improper marketing will not, without more, get a third-party payor before a jury. Yet other actions are pending around the country, and the stakes are high. Perhaps cases in the Ninth Circuit, which includes California, will be more successful, since the Ninth Circuit is deemed by many to be the most liberal in the nation. Choice of forum may play a role in the success of these cases. The Court of Appeal ruled against the tort recovery of an independent contractor for a workplace injury consistent with the now well-established Prevet Doctrine. Here's what happened in the case of Andrews versus Verizon. Sandra Andrews was employed by Securitas Security Services, an independent contractor retained by Verizon to provide security services at its facilities. Securitas employees are stationed at guard shacks from which guards monitor those who enter and exit the Verizon facility. Normally, an office chair is available for Securitas employees during their eight-hour shifts. However, a few days before the accident, the office chair broke. Another Securitas employee replaced the broken chair with a barstool-type chair he obtained from one of Verizon's buildings with the permission of a Verizon employee. On the day of the accident, Sandra Andrews was working a graveyard shift. She attempted to get down from the replacement chair, but the top of her right foot became caught in the chair's footrest. Andrews sustained a fracture to her upper spine, which required surgery and a spinal fusion. Andrews filed a negligence suit against Verizon, claiming that Verizon knew or should have known the chair was unsafe. Verizon moved for summary judgment, which was granted, and the case was dismissed. The Court of Appeal affirmed in the unpublished case of Andrews versus Horizon. It applied the well-established Prevet Doctrine that was established in the 1993 case of Prevet versus Superior Court. Generally, when employees of independent contractors are injured in the workplace, they cannot sue the party that hired the contractor to do the work. The hirer implicitly delegates to the contractor any tort law duty it owes to the contractor's employees to ensure the safety of the workplace. An exception to this doctrine applies when the hirer's act of providing unsafe equipment affirmatively contributed to the party's injuries. Also, the hirer may be held liable if the hirer's negligent exercise of retained control over safety conditions affirmatively contributed to the employee's injuries. Neither exception applied here. The Court of Appeal concluded that SB 863 retroactively limits an award of attorney fees for an employer filing an application against an unrepresented worker. Here's what happened in the case of San Francisco State University versus the WCAB and Ellen Jones. Ellen Jones was employed as a lecturer by the State University and claimed she injured her bilateral upper extremities and lower back. The university retained legal counsel who in turn filed an application for adjudication of claim with the WCAB in May of 2009. When this application was filed, applicant was unrepresented. 
At the same time, the university noticed applicants' deposition. Later, applicants' attorney claimed an attorney fee as a result of the university having filed an application against the unrepresented worker. But effective January 1, 2013, the labor code was amended by SB 863 to provide that the employer shall only be liable for any attorney fees incurred by the employee in connection with the declaration of readiness to proceed. Thus, the triggering event for the unrepresented applicant's right to attorney fees changed from the employer's filing of an application for adjudication of claim to the employer's filing of a declaration of readiness to proceed. SB 863 was to be applied retroactively. Following the effective date of SB 863, the work comp judge decided that applicant was not entitled to an attorney fee since applicant was the one that filed the DOR. As such, the judge declared moot all previously decided issues relating to attorney fees. But the WCAB granted reconsideration and set aside the work comp judge's denial of fees under the newly revised statute. It relied on a prior reconsideration order that was a final decision not subject to the retroactive application of SB 863, or so they said. But the Court of Appeal reversed in the unpublished case. The case hinged on whether there was any final award of attorney fees when the amended statute took place on January 2013. The WCAB's December 13, 2012 order granting reconsideration and removal expressly stated that the work comp judge had not yet awarded attorney fees. The issue of applicants' right to fees under Labor Code Section 4064 was deferred and the matter remanded to the work comp judge for decision. The WCAB twice recognized in its opinion that the work comp judge had not yet awarded such fees. Thus, the Court of Appeal sought no basis in law or reason for concluding that a final award of fees had already been or was being made in 2012. A Sacramento Superior Court judge ruled that the Sacramento Bee newspaper misclassified its newspaper carriers as independent contractors when they were in fact employees. The newspaper had the right to control the manner and means of how the carriers performed their duties, making them employees under the law. The Sacramento Bee, however, plans to contest the ruling. The publisher and president, Cheryl Dell, said that the Bee is extremely disappointed in the decision and strongly believes that the individual newspaper carriers were properly classified as independent contractors. She said, its classification of carriers as independent contractors is in full compliance with regulations issued directly to the newspaper industry by the state of California. Whether workers are employees or independent contractors is a hot issue in California and nationwide. Employers do not pay unemployment, state disability, and workers' compensation taxes for independent contractors. The fight in this case was narrowed over time to whether carriers who worked for the Sacramento Bee any time between 2005 and 2009 should be reimbursed for mileage expenses because they were incorrectly classified as independent contractors. 
The decision follows a nine-week trial in Sacramento Superior Court earlier this year. With more than 5,100 people in the class action, the mileage tab could be more than $21 million. How much the Sacramento Bee has paid lawyers to defend the case is unknown, but plaintiff attorneys' costs so far are more than $12 million to represent the class. And now our fraud report. Santa Barbara Sheriff deputies arrested a correctional officer for insurance fraud and grand theft for allegedly collecting more than $60,000 in workers' compensation benefits he was not entitled to receive. 33-year-old James Levice Davis Junius of Lompoc injured his elbow in November 2012 while performing his duties as a juvenile institutional officer. Five days later, Junius was started on temporary disability, which he continued to collect until his arrest. In addition to his employment as an institutional officer, Junius owns and operates a landscaping business known as the College Students Lawn Service. Junius told his doctor and the claims adjuster that he was not working or collecting any source of income from his private business. But evidence showed that Junius was back to landscaping in April 2013 while collecting work comp benefits. Investigators obtained evidence that he was lifting 60 pounds of stone, building a wall, laying sod, lifting and working with concrete blocks, and numerous other tasks Junius claimed he could not perform. The total loss in this case amounted to more than $71,000 for a collection of benefits and investigation costs. The United States had filed civil complaints in a federal district court in Los Angeles against several neurosurgeons and spinal implant distribution companies and the company's owners, Brent Berry, John Hoffman, and Adam Pike. Reliance Medical Systems allegedly sold spinal implants in Southern California through distributorships that it controlled, including Apex Medical Technologies and Kronos Spinal Technologies. Doctors Growathon Tariyethan, who practices neurosurgery in Orange, California, and Ali Miswala, who practices in Pomona, were allegedly physician investors in the Kronos distribution company. The complaints allege that Apex Medical and Kronos Spinal paid physicians to induce them to use Reliance Spinal implants in the surgeries they performed. The litigation also involves Ventura County neurosurgeon Mustafa Abu Samra, MD, and Community Memorial Health System Hospital in Oxnard. One of the complaints alleges that in the spring of 2009, Dr. Abu Samra, president of Ventura County Neurosurgical Associates, recruited a doctor named Arya Omar Sabit, a non-board-certified neurosurgeon, to relocate from New Jersey to Ventura County, California, to be employed by Dr. Abu Samra's corporation. Sabit was allegedly allowed to perform highly specialized neurosurgical operative procedures, including spinal surgeries at an Oxnard hospital operated by Community Memorial Health Systems. Sabit had allegedly performed over 375 procedures from June 2009 to December 2010. Some 27 patients who were injured by Sabit's procedures brought 
individual lawsuits against Sabit and some of the other defendants for medical malpractice in Ventura County Superior Court. At the time, Sabit was allegedly using Apex-manufactured instrumentation in many of the surgeries at CMH, and Sabit had a financial interest allegedly in Apex. Sean Xie, MD, a neurosurgeon in Los Angeles to whom Sabit referred some of his patients with complications from Sabit's surgeries, also had an interest in Apex. This investigation was a coordinated effort among the commercial litigation branch of the department's civil division and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of the Inspector General. The lawsuits were filed in the Central District of California. And in regulatory news, the Division of Workers' Compensation has adopted regulatory changes to postpone the ICD-10 compliance date until October 1st, 2015. ICD-10 is the 10th revision of the International Statistical Classification of Diseases, a medical classification list by the World Health Organization. It contains codes for diseases, signs and symptoms, abnormal findings, complaints, social circumstances, and external causes of injury or diseases. The code set allows more than 14,400 different codes and permits the tracking of many new diagnoses. The codes can be expanded to over 16,000 codes by using optional subclassifications. The deadline for the United States to begin using ICD-10 is now also set for October 1, 2015. The implementation of ICD-10 has been subject to previous delays at the federal regulatory level. ICD-10 was adopted for workers' compensation in February 2014 with an implementation date of October 1, 2014 to coincide with the then-anticipated federal implementation date. Subsequently, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services issued a final rule postponing use of ICD-10 now until October 1, 2015. Thus, the administrative director has amended the workers' compensation regulations to align the workers' compensation transition date with the new federal deadline. All workers' compensation participants are encouraged to move forward expeditiously to prepare for the transition. The revised regulation and the Medical Billing and Payment Guide can be found on the division's approved regulations webpage. An investigation by the Los Angeles Times of the costs of the City of Los Angeles public safety workers' injuries concluded that Los Angeles police and firefighters take paid injury leave at significantly higher rates than public safety employees elsewhere in California. One in five Los Angeles police officers and firefighters took paid injury leave at least once last year, and that not only are the number of leaves going up, but they are getting longer. Taxpayers spent $328 million over the last five years on salary, medical care, and related expenses for employees on injury leave. A police officer or a firefighter earns 100% of his or her salary exempt from federal or state taxes while on disability leave. And time spent on leave counts toward pension benefits. So it is actually more lucrative not to work than it is to work. 
Total salaries paid to city public safety employees on leave increased more than 30% from 2009 to 2013. City leaders across California say the very design of the program invites abuse. 19% of Los Angeles police and firefighters took at least one injury leave last year, a rate significantly higher than those of other large local governments. For comparison, in San Francisco, the rate was 13%. In Long Beach, it was 12%. And in San Diego, it was only 10%. A disproportionate amount of injury pay went to a small fraction of employees who took leaves again and again, sometimes reporting a new injury just as the previous leave was about to expire. Fewer than 5% of injury claims by LA police and firefighters over the past five years studied were attributed to acts of violence, smoke inhalation, or contact with fire or extreme heat. City officials offer a number of theories for the rise in claims and costs. But among the most frequently cited explanations is a kind of culture shift in the workforce as employees see their colleagues take more and longer leaves, they do the same. The California legislature continues to pass more liberal workers' compensation provisions, and Governor Brown continues to use his veto power at least over some of them. Two bills that would have increased benefits for public safety officers did not obtain his signature this week. He returned Assembly Bill 2052 without his signature. This bill would have expanded the categories of peace officers that are eligible for workers' compensation presumptions. The proposed law replaced the limited listing of the peace officers who qualify for the various presumptions with a citation to the penal code sections qualifying all peace officers who receive the benefits of the presumptions. The Senate Appropriations Committee said that the extension of presumptions beyond the six categories of peace officers would result in substantial costs for state departments. The exact magnitude is unknown, but could total in the millions of dollars annually across all state departments employing peace officers. Brown's veto message noted that current workers' compensation law provides coverage to certain categories of peace officers and firefighters for presumed compensable injuries. These presumptions, he says, which include cancer, heart disease, pneumonia, hernia, biochemical illnesses, tuberculosis, and meningitis, were enacted in response to the types of hazards which these workers face. Over the course of many decades, California has expanded both the diseases and the kinds of safety employees which these presumes, uh, presumptions cover. Brown said that this measure seeks to expand coverage to dozens of additional categories of officers without real evidence that these officers confront the hazards that give rise to the presumptions codified into existing law. He concluded that the presumption should be used rarely and only when justified by clear and convincing scientific evidence. Governor Brown also returned Assembly Bill 2378 without his signature. This bill provides that the right to a leave of absence for up to one year with full pay for safety officers would not offset any portion of those employees' rights 
up to 140, 104 weeks of workers' compensation TTD. This proposed law was to reverse current case law known as the Nettel decision, which included 4850 pay within the 104-week cap. Governor Brown's veto message said that the special considerations supporting salary continuation for public safety employees do not correspondingly support the expectation that these employees will need substantially more time than other injured workers to recover from their injuries. And in other news, Floyd Scarron Kelly is pleased to announce its second annual 2014 Northern California Employment Law Conference. The keynote speaker will be Phyllis Chang, the director of the California Department of Fair Employment and Housing. The conference will cover important workplace topics related to the interactive process, disability leave, pregnancy leave, the Affordable Care Act, workers' compensation, and the crossover issues related to Fair Employment Act and much, much more. When an employee is injured, all California employers must comply with workers' compensation laws. And all employers with five or more employees must comply with the overlapping disability discrimination laws under the Fair Employment and Housing Act, which are likely triggered when an employee sustains a work-related injury. California has over 16 statutes related to employee leaves of absences. These statutes are often confusing and more significantly often impose overlapping employer obligations. Failure to understand the employer's obligations under both sets of laws can turn a straightforward workers' compensation case into a FIHA nightmare. This seminar presentation will identify those statutes focusing in on the triangle of leave-related statutes that pose the biggest headache for employers. Significant changes have been proposed to the California Family Rights Act, which governs family leave and medical leave. This presentation will provide key guidance focusing in on how a workers' compensation case can evolve into a FIHA matter, best practices for complying with FIHA in workers' compensation cases, a review of the employer's interactive process obligations in a workers' compensation case, how to achieve global settlements in a work comp case, and what to expect if a work comp case becomes a FIHA lawsuit. The event is scheduled for November 6, 2014 at the Hilton Garden Inn at 1800 Powell Street in Emeryville. MCLE and CE credits will be provided. This program has also been approved for seven recertification credit hours towards PHR, SPHR, and GPHR recertification through the HR Certification Institute. Please visit the Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly website for registration information. And with that story, that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, iPad, iPod, or Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. Again, I am Renee Thomas-Foles with Floyd, Scarron, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.